1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, David hamilton Golland, Professor of History at Governors State University in the Chicago Southland. We're speaking with Patrick Roberts, Associate Professor and ACUE Distinguished Teaching Scholar in the Department of Leadership, Educational Psychology, and Foundations at Northern Illinois University. Today, we're going back in time a few years to talk about a book he and Richard E. Stams published in 2010 with the University of Illinois Press, Give him Soul Richard. Patrick, welcome back to the New Books Network.
1: Thanks very much, David. It's great to be here again.
0: Tell me, who was Richard E. Stams?
1: Well, Richard Stamps was a legendary pioneer of black radio in the 1950s. Um, He's really got an extraordinary story that reaches back into his childhood in Memphis in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, really just a remarkable figure in that he was involved with um, many cultural and political changes over, um, really over the 20th century. Um, I got to know him. In, the, in 2000, I was the education director at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. And we did a program where we brought in Gilbert Williams, who was the author of a book, um, Legendary Pioneers of Black Radio. And Gilbert asked me to get in touch with um, this gentleman I had never heard of, Richard Stams, um, who had been interviewed by Gilbert for that book. Um, And he asked me to contact Richard and um, invite Richard to the event that we were hosting at the Broadcast Museum. So I made the phone call, found the number, made the phone call. And on the other end of the phone uh, was this remarkable man, Richard, who kept telling me that he was a living legend. I'm a living legend, he kept telling me. And uh, I took him at his word. Um, We arranged to have him come to the event. I drove down to his home in Inglewood, picked him up. And on the way from Inglewood back to the Broadcast Museum in the Loop, um, Richard just regaled me with stories from his life as a boy in Memphis, as a young man working with Ma Rainey in traveling minstrel shows, um, his time in Chicago in the 1920s, experiencing the many nightclubs on the South Side, his experiences with politics in the 1940s, um, his experiences on radio in the 1950s and early 1960s, his experience on television, actually, in the late 1950s. Really just a remarkable Remarkable history. And um so from that point on, um, Richard and I developed a personal relationship. Um, I approached him about um writing helping him write his memoirs. And um so we worked together for about seven years. I should mention that th- at the time of our meeting in two thousand, Richard was already 93 or 94 years old and just in in remarkable. Um, shape, both physically and cognitively. Just his, his recall, his memory was just tremendous. And uh, so we began this remarkable journey from 2000 uh, until 2007 when he passed away, um, pulling this book together, um, you know, the, the many interesting pieces of his life. And um, very fortunate to have the University of Illinois Press um, publish in uh 2010. Unfortunately, that was 3 years after Richard's passing. Um but grateful that we got the book out.
0: Yeah, so that's that's interesting. The the byline of the book reads Richard Heustam with Patrick A Roberts. Uh and yet as I read it, it seemed to go back and forth between your first-person voice and his. Um can you tell me how the two of you defined your different roles on the project? Um, uh, and you know and how that uh, what what's sort of unique about that
1: absolutely it's always a tricky thing to help someone write their memoirs um one of the goals is obviously to um you know provide the the necessary guidance and in, in editing and so forth that that brings together into a coherent whole what are often um scattered memories various points, right? Um, and it was absolutely important to me to um honor Richard's very unique voice. Um just a wonderful way of of speaking and and um and speaking in ways that were very powerful to to for the points that he was trying to make. So the way we arranged it is um each chapter in the book begins with my voice as I contextualize the chapter. Um, I mention important dates. I try to provide some some larger cultural historical um, context. And then we move into Richard's storytelling, in essence, him telling the story, uh, the stories, of the particular period that that chapter is dealing with. So Richard didn't always have um, the dates, the exact dates. Um, The events of his life um, were richly varied. Um, So sometimes it was hard to keep track of chronology for him or to really pinpoint um, dates. For example, the exact date that he started on WGES radio in the 1950s. Wasn't quite sure. Richard also was a remarkable man because he kept everything. He, he, he didn't throw much away. And so he had a lot of really unique and rare documents in his possession as well. That really helped me uh, in my role as the person who was piecing together the chronology and trying to nail down some dates. So Richard and I would meet regularly over the course of those seven years. I would um, typically drive down to his home in Inglewood, and we would spend lots of hours in his living room um, talking um, with the tape recorder running. And him telling me these, these, these stories, often we would go through um his scrapbooks and some of these papers that he held on to and those would spark additional remembrances um, occasionally uh, we spent one great afternoon we drove out to the old WGES studios um, on Washington West Washington and they were actually renovating the studio um, and they it had, had long ceased to be a radio station. It had changed hands a number of times and they were renovating it, turning it into a, um, some sort of facility um, for um, homeless mothers, I believe. Anyway, the folks renovating the building very graciously invited us, us in and uh, Richard toured the old WGES studios and that really sparked some wonderful reminiscences. So, um, that's how we operated. I took a trip to Memphis one time to do some research in the Shelby County archives, um, particularly related to Richard's birth. It occasionally was often sometimes difficult to separate out fact from fiction. Part of Richard's, um, uh, personality is very strong personality was when he um, got on radio in the 1950s there was some um, self mythologizing going on as well as he created a radio persona and um, as one can expect and again I worked with him until he was 101 years old um, and sometimes it, it got a little fuzzy as to what was um, in fact, in what maybe was a story that he had built up around himself um, as a radio um, celebrity, which he really was.
0: Yeah, was, um, I'm glad you went in, went in that direction because I was actually going to ask you that. Um, and So it sounds like some of these chapters or a lot of these chapters are your transcriptions of recordings of him telling you stories. Is that accurate?
1: That is accurate. Yes. So the, the part of the chapter that is in his voice is absolutely his voice. Those are, are, um, pretty direct transcriptions of the stories and that we got ch- captured on tape. And so what I think is one of the great things about the book, I think is that his, his personality really shines through and he didn't hold back. And so, um, you know, some of the things he says, um, uh, you know, are, are strongly worded, um, to be sure. And he had lots of opinions about, um, you know, the, the, the many people in his life, um, for example, Leonard Chess of Chess Records, for example, some of the other disc jockeys that he worked with at WGES, um, and so forth. So that was a, a real major goal of the book was to strike that balance between providing our readers with the right kind of context. Okay. This is what was going on in Chicago in the 1920s say, and then Richard's, you know, voice in telling the stories. And I think those two things work really nicely together because it gives our readers uh, a real nice sense of really just how, how unique and pioneering, um, you know, Richard's uh, experiences were.
0: Um, so certainly while he was still alive and you were working together on the project, if there was anything in the recording that you couldn't quite make out for whatever reason, you could go back and ask him. But were there any moments after his death where you had to make a, uh, an educated guess or a reasonable conclusion uh, about something that wasn't quite clear in the, in the uh, in the recording?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And I can't think of anything specifically there. It was um, definitely a challenge after his passing to, um, it, you know, edit the the tapes. Um, I had to assume that the way I was editing them and piecing them together was in a way that he would approve of. Um, I should mention that I worked very closely with Richard's daughter, Phyllis Stamps who lived above him. And Phyllis and I, over the years, have have grown very, very close. And um, she was just absolutely invaluable in helping facilitate, um, particularly in the early years, um, uh, my relationship with Richard. And then Phyllis worked with me closely after his death as um, the book came together into final form. I can't think of anything specifically that I I struggled with. I struggled to clarify um, with with Richard no longer there. Um, Certainly there were things that we kept out of the book that that I decided ultimately to keep out of the book that were um, particularly (laughs) worded strongly, uh, you know, about various people and, and these things couldn't be confirmed one way or the other. And so it just seems better just to leave those, those pieces out of the book. Um,
0: Apocryphal stories about Mayor Daly.
1: Yes, sort of exactly. And, you know, and others, uh, you know, Richard was very keyed in to, um, you know, um, political back rooms in the 1940s and the 1950s and had very, um, close relationships with a lot of um well-known people um you know was very involved in their personal lives as well so i had to make some decisions about you know what made sense to leave in what made sense to leave out and also in the book i try to qualify or at least mention things that may not be true that richard Um, believed to be true. So, for example, Richard was born in 1906 in Memphis. The story he tells is that he was born on April 1st, 1906, and he was born on a barge in the middle of the Mississippi River as his mother was um, trying to reach his father who was working on one of the levees and she needed to collect his pay. And so she was on a barge going out to, to uh, meet him on the levee and she gave birth to Richard there in the middle of the Mississippi river on April 1st. Um, now Richard believed that story to be true. And when I questioned him about it, well, you know, Richard, is that a true story? Is that an embellishment? Um, you know, he didn't—he didn't really care to be questioned about that. So, in, in my introduction to that particular chapter, I sort of note that, you know, this may be true, this may not be true. Other other folks in his life um, doubted the veracity of that particular story. Um, I did go to the Shelby County. Um, clerk's office in memphis and looked up his birth in the records he's listed there as richard stams s t a m s but interestingly enough unlike all the other births that were registered no specific date is given for for him um which i found really interesting so you know did it happen that way did it not happen that way You know, I'm certainly not in a position to say, but I felt it important in, in writing the introduction to that chapter that, you know, that, that be pointed out. Certainly it seemed to be true in Richard's mind.
0: Even more interesting that it was a birth certificate without a date on it.
1: I felt so, I, you know, I thought so too. Um, Which again, leads me to believe that there probably is some truth to the story.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm. They had to figure out what side of the river, because uh, it, it was he was he legally born in Arkansas? Was he legally born
1: in, in exactly? Yeah. Now, so he claimed he he claimed he was born on April first. Now, as everybody knows, April first is also April Fool's Day. Yes. So I can also imagine a scenario where he, when he was on radio, one of the. Um, things he really tried to do was um, emphasize his Southern roots um, on the radio because he was appealing to radio listeners in Chicago who had migrated from the South. Uh-huh. So he was building connections with them. So, um, you know, he would emphasize his own roots um, that way. And I, I can see a scenario where Richard concocted the story um, you know, of being born on April 1st is a kind of April fool's joke. But again, I don't know. And, uh, I tried to clarify that with him and he was pretty adamant that that was, you know, that was the truth. And one thing I learned very early is that, um, you know, Richard, he, he didn't suffer fools lightly and, um, you know, he didn't like to be particularly questioned about, um, you know, the, the facts of his life, um, if they, if they, um, you know, t- um, were discrepant with, with the facts as he was telling them.
0: Yeah. And you know, what always strikes me as interesting is this is in the grand scheme of things, this is such recent history, uh, and yet, um, so little remains, uh, of, for most people you know, for the history of most individuals who have lived in recent decades. Um, and then you find a birth certificate without a date on it, and there's no other corroboration for the, uh, the date of birth, let alone the story that, that he's, he's
1: repeating. And you just sort of have to do your best as a historian. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I did try to do my best in, in corroborating a lot of the stuff, uh, yeah, a lot of the... The things, but it's it's the balance, right? Because on the other hand, um, our histories are what we remember them to be. And um, in my work with Richard, I was always very confident that what he was telling me was exactly as how he remembered it,
0: mm-hmm. and, and he so, wasn't outright, he wasn't lying outright,
1: absolutely was. not. In, in no way, shape or form. and um so I think that really provides the book with a really kind of rich um, texture, I would say. And so there is a bit of back and forth between our voices as I introduce the chapter and then and then Richard um, you know tells the stories. Um, I also wrote an epilogue. So after Richard passed away in uh, two thousand and seven, um, just before he passed away, I took him to a birthday celebration. It was his 101st birthday celebration, and it was held at the WVON radio station um, that uh, Purvis Spann um, owned and operated. And um, Purvis Spann, being also a legendary blues disc jockey, um, who had been on WVON when Leonard Chess owned it in the 1960s and um, I drove Richard and um, it really was my last time having a really um, sort of 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 personal interaction with Richard before he entered the hospital and then shortly thereafter passed away and um, so I write about that in the epilogue and Try to really capture, um, you know, who he was, and, and by that point, he wasn't sure if he was 101 or 102. Um, and, you know, so you know, I think I think he was ready to let go at that point. But up until the end, he he was um, really committed to not only telling his story, but he was also committed to any kind of um, hustle that he thought would bring him the recognition that um, he felt he deserved, and, and I also feel he deserved. Um, and um, so really, if um, folks are interested in the book, I really um, hope they'll they'll take the time to read the epilogue as well, because I think it's, it's, it offers up a very personal reminiscence of our relationship,,
0: and uh, I like that you refer to a lot of the things he he did as hustles, uh, so I can ask you to tell the story of the sound truck, but you can you can either answer that or let me just put it out there for you if you'd like to find something else that's really neat uh, or interesting an interesting story from the book that you'd like to share with our listeners that'd be great. <laughs>
1: Sure. Well, I, I definitely we can start with the sound truck. And when I say hustle, what I mean by that is entrepreneurialism. Richard from a very early age was an entrepreneur who strove always to, um, make money and, um, wasn't always easy to do as a black man in America, um, through much of the 20th century. And so, by hustle was, he was looking for any opportunity he could to be successful in in making money, in supporting himself and his family. So for example, when he was a boy in Memphis, you know, he, he shined shoes, he would dance on street corners, they would um, collect holly from the tops of tall trees. He would He and his friends would shimmy up the trees. Um, and this is rather dangerous to collect the holly and then sell the holly the um, holly at Christmas time. Um, so always, always working, always looking for new opportunities. Um, in the late 1940s, he had become, um, by that point, um, through his political involvement with the Democratic Party, he had been appointed um, by Adlai Stevenson, believe it or not, to be a factory inspector for the state of Illinois. So he would drive around the south side of Chicago and inspect, and I say factories, places like dry cleaning establishments. Um or manufacturing plants on the south side to make sure they were in compliance with whatever state regulations happened to be in force and um, well while, while doing this one day he came across a man who had what he referred to as a sound truck basically it's a rolling billboard with loudspeakers <laughs> And, uh, this gentleman would sell advertising for the billboards that were on either side of his, um, at that point it was a, it was a a big car, Plymouth, I believe. And then would, you know, drive around the neighborhoods, um, advertising what was ever on the side of um, the vehicle. So Richard bought that vehicle from this man and went into business for himself. He referred to it as the sound truck because he hooked up these loudspeakers And he would play records in the truck as he drove through the neighborhoods with these signs, advertising things like canned um, chitlins, for example, or VG wine, for example. And he would play records. Um, He traded the Plymouth Inn for a kind of cargo van. And so he expanded a little bit. And um, he would get records for free from... Um, new, new emerging record companies like chess records or VJ records or USA records. Um, he would get these records from, for free from folks like Leonard chess, um, because they wanted the advertising. It, it was good for them to have these records, you know, blared out of these loudspeakers on this truck that's rolling around, um, the neighborhoods on the South side. And so Richard began to develop these relationships with these independent record company owners. And, um, that those relationships really served him well when he ended up on radio, which that story is related to the sound truck. So, um, occasionally stores would hire him to set up his sound truck outside the store and play records and, um, you know broadcast and a gentleman one day by the name um whose name was Dr Dyer um a white elderly man encountered Richard was so impressed with his verve and spunk and personality and the way he was really um being both a showman and a um salesman and combining those two things Dr. Dyer hired him to be a disc jockey on Dr. Dyer's radio station, WGES. And um, from that point, Richard really began rolling because the things that really had defined his personality up to that point is, again, his, his hustle, um, his showmanship, his salesmanship, All of those things sort of came together and made him one of the um, most influential uh, black radio disc jockeys in Chicago in the 1950s when there weren't very many black disc jockeys on the radio. Um, And so that that entrepreneurial spirit um, really, I think, defined his life uh, at all stages of his life. And, um, up until he died at the age of 101, he never lost that entrepreneurial spirit. He was always searching for the, what he would call the gimmick, right? The angle, the hook that any good sales pitch needed. Um, again, right up until he, until he passed away and, um, that was quite remarkable
0: We're talking with Patrick A. Roberts about the book he wrote with Richard E. Stams, Give Him Soul, Richard, published by the University of Illinois Press. Uh, Patrick, do you think Richard saw a dividing line? Well, you mentioned a moment ago that Governor Stevenson, uh, and for the for our listeners, that's Governor Adlai Stevenson of Illinois, uh, two-time Democratic nominee for president during the 1950s, but um, Uh, gave him some of these early opportunities um, in politics. And uh, do you think he saw a dividing line between music and politics? And if so, where did he place that line?
1: I'm not sure he saw the line. For for Richard, um, politics was a hustle as well. Politics was nothing but a hustle. And um, politicians were, you know showman, showman and salesman who, who everybody had a gimmick and everybody had a hustle. Um, so I, I don't think he really saw much of a dividing line. His entry into politics, um, you know, in, in the 1920s and most, uh, African Americans were Republicans. Understandable. It was the party of Lincoln. That began to change with the election of um, FDR in the 1930s. And so Richard, very early on, was a member of the Democratic Party, which had a, a strategy of winning over um, black voters in Chicago, winning them over to the, to the um, Democratic Party. And so Richard got involved with that very early on. He was, um, ward committeeman, I think, um, you know, the, the democratic machine in Chicago was looking for, um, African-Americans, uh, Democrats who would help, who would help them work, you know, the African-American communities, particularly on the, on the South side. Um, and so Richard did that and he was, Um, as a result, you know, had a lot of opportunities to rise in the, in the, um, in the party now as a black man, he was only going to rise unfortunately so far. Um, but he understood that was a hustle. Um, the politics was a hustle as well. And, um, so, and, and he remained politically active again, all, all his life. Um, as well. But that that story of the shift experienced in Chicago in the 30s and in the 40s from an African-American community that was primarily voting Republican to a community that was voting Democrat, he was very much a part of that shift. And as you say, it opened up these additional opportunities for him um, on down the road. He actually had a letter from a letter of recommendation from Adlai Stevenson that Stevenson had written him in the early 1960s. Uh, Stevenson at that point, I think was the um, ambassador to the United nations and Stevenson took the time to write Richard a letter of recommendation. Um, This was following Richard's um, firing from WGES and the letter Stevenson wrote was addressed to Leonard Chess who had just opened up, um, WVON radio. So it's, it's kind of an interesting artifact of, um, just how far Richard's political activism, um, carried him.
0: It also strikes me as a mid 20th century story about celebrity politics, which is, obviously something we're still wrestling with as a society
1: today. I think so that, you know, um, the, I, again, I go back to, to, to the hustle into the gimmick. Um, and, you know, certainly in the book, Richard has interesting things to say about, um, the first mayor daily and the first mayor Daly's rise. But of course, Richard knew, uh, knew, of certainly the the mayors that had come before Daly, um, Sir Mac, for example, or Big Bill Thompson, as well, and all of these folks were were larger than life um, personalities.
0: So why did he get fired from WGES? Why, why did he have to get a letter from uh, at that point UN Ambassador Stevenson?
1: Well. Uh, Dr. Dyer was old and uh, I guess he was no longer interested in running the radio station. So WGES was sold to um, a Texas based corporation, the McLendon corporation um, that happened in about 1962 and WGES at that point became WYNR. And, um, the cleaned house, essentially. And so Richard left um, WYNR. Now, around that time, too, um, were the Payola scandals. And a lot of African-American disc jockeys were unfairly targeted in, in the federal government's interest in, in prosecuting um, for payola. A lot of white disc jockeys got off easy. Um, Dick, Clark, for Dick Clark, for example. Exactly. That's that's the classic example. The African-American disc jockeys were not so lucky. And um, so Richard spent a brief time um, in prison uh, due to payola. Um, and when he got out, he was looking for work and Leonard Chess had just opened up um, WVON and, um, Richard was hired by chess, um, not as a disc jockey, but rather as a salesperson. Um, and, um, he worked for WVN for a couple of years, not very long. Um, the, the book kind of goes into why ultimately Leonard chess fired him from WVON um, chess was a complicated figure, um, you know, to put it mildly, um, and, um, you know, at that point, Richard went into another, of uh, other business opportunities as a promoter, um, as a scout for some of the independent record labels in Chicago. He himself, Richard had his own small independent record labels, for example, um, Foxy. Dawn, Halo, Peso, these were some of the um, record labels that Richard himself owned, and and so he would put out singles as well, mostly in in the earlier um, 1960s um, and late 1950s, so artists like Harold Barrage, um, Freddie Robinson, for example. But by the mid-'60s, Richard's career in radio was effectively over after he left VON, um, as a salesperson, but he's got a great story in the book about, um, during his brief time in, in prison, um, the, the side hustle he had in prison selling records. So he would, he would smuggle in records, um, like Barbra Streisand records. And, um, then he would sell them.
0: Always a hustle.
1: Always a hustle. Always thinking, the man really had a genius for, um, for the gimmick, for the gimmick, for for the for the entrepreneurial angle. He really, really did.
0: So, looking back, why do you think it's so important for people in Chicago today to know the story of Richard Stamps?
1: Well, there's a continuity there. Um, I think in many ways, Richard's history is the history um, of Chicago in the 20th century. He came to Chicago as really as part of the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the North, looking for economic opportunity. He um, experienced the Jazz Age um, in Chicago. In the 20s and so in the book um, readers can get a very rich sense of the 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 many um, what were called black and tans these were nightclubs that admitted both whites and blacks and uh, on the south side so it's a wonderful portrait of what life was like in Chicago in the 1920s And then I've spoken about his involvement with politics in the thirties and the forties that really sort of captures that, that shift, that demographic shift that was occurring in Chicago at that time and how that was impacting politics. And, um, then of course, you know, the post-World War II, um, advertising boom. Now this is really interesting because one of the things that made Richard so successful on radio was his ability to um, combine showmanship with salesmanship. And he was able to do that at a time when national advertisers, um, you know, beer makers or bread makers and so forth, so or 7-Up, for example, which was his primary sponsor when he was on radio. Awesome.
0: On the very cover of the book, we have him with a bottle of 7up.
1: Exactly. So these national um, advertising companies um, were looking to hire or sponsor African-American disc jockeys because they were beginning to understand the African-American community as a consumer market in its own right. And so they wanted um, sp- spokespersons who could speak directly to African-American consumers um, as a targeted audience. And so Richard really sort of, it, it was kind of a, a perfect storm in a way because he really benefited from, from that you know, those demographic shifts. And of course, the post-World War II migration that added to the earlier Great Migration. So a lot of folks from the South now living in Chicago, and these were folks who had grown up on blues music in the South. And so they were eager to hear this on radio in the North. And um, of course, record companies like Chess, were supplying that music, disc jockeys like Richard Stams were playing that music, and then advertisers were benefiting um, because they would um, sponsor these African American disc jockeys in order to reach the African American consumer market. So, in learning about Richard's history, one can really get a sense of of Chicago's history and how things were changing in Chicago. Economically, politically, socially, and culturally. And Richard seems, you know, really to be a a part of all of that um, throughout. Um,
0: That's a a great answer. I I have to say there's a growing literature in recent years on the role of consumerism in uh, the timing of the successes of the 20th century civil rights movement and um uh, i think your book adds to or i should say added to that uh, it's been a few years since your book was published but i think it needs to be um i think it needs to be discovered by historians perhaps a bit more and hopefully um being here on new books network will help
1: yeah and I, so i would recommend the book, also the book uh, entrepreneurs of profit and pride by mark newman which is uh it's older than my book even but um still out there. And, um, you know, it's a good book too, that, that tries to capture this history in, in a broader kind of way. Um, I want to mention that in, so Richard began on WGES probably in about 1955, at least full time. And in early 1956, he was approached, um, to, um, develop and star in his own television program on Channel Seven, WBKB. Now, this was really this is really extraordinary because there were virtually no African Americans um, who had their own programs on television, locally or network or otherwise. I
0: mean, Am- Amos and Andy was still on the airwaves, wasn't it?
1: Yes, but these weren't talk shows these these weren't shows that were um those those were shows of course amos and andy was a i guess an early sitcom a comedy and and of course the joke um played played a lot of uh, stereotypes yes right but
0: Richard on them, but this would be the opposite.
1: Exactly. So Richard's show was called Richard's open door and it was a news program. And so, um, it almost like a little variety show. So Richard would have on, he would have a musical segment, um, where, um, African-American teenagers would, would be dancing to, um, some music. He would read news stories from the Chicago Defender. He would invite on and interview um, African-American guests. So for example, Edith Sampson, who was, I believe one of the first, if not the first um, African-American women um, diplomats to the United Nations. Um, in the 1940s and perhaps in the 1950s. Um, but for example, he had her on and interviewed her. So it was a very sophisticated, um, kind of, of news program variety show. Um, that really was unique. Um, it ran for 13 episodes. His sponsor was a clothing store. I believe it was called Martin's clothing store which was located on Roosevelt road and um, they sponsored the show. His radio sponsor seven up refused to sponsor it. Um, They said, we'll sponsor you on radio, but there's no way we're going to sponsor you on television. So they didn't. Um, Richard's open door ran for about 13 shows and then channel seven refused to renew it. Um, Richard said the the program got a lot of criticism because um, Richard was not trafficking in stereotypes at all. In fact, was countering those stereotypes um, with programming that really sort of um, emphasized or highlighted, you know, um, African-American achievements.
0: Well, if you think about it, even today, in that genre, Oprah Winfrey is still an outlier. The Tonight Show has never been hosted by an African-American, uh, nor the late show.
1: It's very true. And, um, you know, often, often historians hold up Nat King Cole as, you know, a, an early pioneer of television is one of the first African-Americans to sort of have his own television program that wasn't built around comedic stereotypes. Um, but Richard's show on channel seven predates on uh, Nat King Cole um, by a couple of months. So it really is, I think a, um, a milestone in television history that too few people know about.
0: Yeah. Too few people. Well, uh, since publishing Give Em Soul Richard, you've worked with Bruce Iglauer on Bitten by the Blues about Alligator Records. Earlier this year, you and I spoke with Bruce about that book right here on the New Books Network. What are you up to lately?
1: Good question. Um, You know, I I do some freelance work for New City and um, for them just published a record review um, available online currently. Um.
0: Uh, Where online do
1: you have the URL? Uh, I don't. You can go to uh, newcity.com, I believe. It's all one word. Um, New City being Chicago, uh, Chicagoland, um, monthly alternative um, uh, arts and culture magazine. And um, also beginning to draft a manuscript on um, watt stacks a cultural history of Watt Stacks. Um, you don't know Watt Stacks. David, do you know, you know Watt Stacks? Um, no, I
0: want you to tell us about oh, Watt Oh, sure.
1: So, um, <laughs> Stacks Records in, um, which w- was in Memphis, um, which rose to prominence in the 1960s in early 1970s. In 1972, Stacks Records, um, organized a concert in Los Angeles at the L.A. Coliseum called Watt Stacks. Um, And the purpose of this concert was to commemorate the Watts riots that had occurred um, some years prior. And so a wonderful roster of um, Stacks artists performed Um, at this concert in 1972 and this year marks the 50th anniversary of that concert. Um, and so, um, I've begun to draft a, a kind of cultural history around that. Um, just looking at some of the musicians, some of the songs they performed, but also the historical and, um, political contexts, you know, around that concert, a concert and some of the personalities, Um, for example, Jesse Jackson, um, who was there and and delivered some really powerful speeches. Um, so in, in, in the music world, that's kind of the project I'm beginning to work on.
0: Was that the same year that Barry Gordy moved Motown Records to Los Angeles?
1: That is a really good question.
0: It's around that time. I think.
1: Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. Um,
0: we can look it up.
1: And we'll have to look it up. Yeah.
0: yeah. And of course, uh, as you were describing it, I was thinking of Questlove's recent documentary, Summer of Soul. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, our, our listeners can probably already have watched
1: it on Hulu. Uh, yeah, it's a great, it's an absolutely wonderful documentary. Yeah. Agree, um, agree. And um, yeah, and there's, there is a film, a Wattstacks film that if listeners haven't, um, an opportunity to, 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 see, I really highly recommend it.
0: So this is spelled W A T T S as in the neighborhood in South central Los Angeles. And then S T A X as in Stax records. Exactly. Very good. The book is give him soul Richard by Richard E. Stams and Patrick A. Roberts published by the university of Illinois press professor Roberts. Thank you again for speaking with us today on the new books network.
1: Hey David, thank you very much. Um, I really enjoy um, talking about Richard and there's a lot we didn't get to just because it's just so rich. And so I encourage listeners if if they're interested in any of this and really learning about a, just a remarkable journey through the 20th century. um, I encourage them to um, check out the book.
0: Me too. Thanks again. And thanks to everyone for listening.